0: Welcome back to the Quantum Podcast, people of the internet. My name is Ethan Morland and I aim to speak to high performers about the hows and the whys behind what they do and break it down with them to help create lessons for you listeners to take away and learn from. On today's episode of the podcast, I have on a really, really interesting guest. He is a bobsled athlete, a former American footballer, and his name is Elliot Markerson. So in this episode, we cover everything from Growing up with a dad who is a high performance coach at college foot level football, we also talk about his transition from American football to then moving on to uh, becoming a bobsled athlete, how that came around, how anyone can even get into bobsled. We talk about his career on the side of being a bobsled athlete, we, how he moved to China for a year, all these really interesting things and Elliot is full of great insights into high performance and Yeah, just a really great guy. Can't thank him enough for his time. Yeah, when I sort of came into contact with Elliot and I saw his page and I saw that he was a bobsled athlete, I was like, I've got to get this guy on because it's a sport that is so overlooked. We don't really know too much about it, you know, in terms of the general population. And from sort of that, sort of performance background i was like i was so interested in the ins and outs of the sport so elliot explains all that and it's yeah really insightful episode hope you all enjoy this episode with elliot markson remember to check his stuff out in the link in the description and also like subscribe share the podcast with anyone who may be interested enjoy okay elliot so you i came across you on instagram obviously was really interested in what you're doing because I think the sport is, it's a crazy sport with not enough media recognition that I was like, because it's, it, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that sort of stuff, but do you want to tell people who you are, what you do?
1: Yeah. Uh, what's up guys? I'm Elliot Markison. I'm 28 years old. I'm from the United States, um, from the state of Mississippi. Uh, so I'm a Southerner and I am on Team USA bobsled, uh, bobsled push athlete. Um, and yeah, like you said, the sport's crazy. A lot of people know the sport from the movie Cool Runnings, which kind of does a—it's uh, it, not a real interpretation <laughs> of what we do. It's—it's kind of like a Disney, kind of a fun kid version. Um, it's a super niche sport. Uh, our community around the world is very small, and we're a very tight knit, tight knit group. And we know athletes from all the other countries, so we're very—it's uh, like a—it's uh, like a one big family.
0: Yeah. It's so—it's such a cool sport because. Like I said before, like me being from sort of like that sports background, I appreciate what it takes to be a very, very good athlete and, you know, like the sort of key performance indicators of the sport. It's just, it's so fascinating, but we'll sort of build from the ground up. So tell me about your sporting background and sort of what you did growing up.
1: Yeah, man, Uh, I played American football growing up. Uh, My dad is actually a a, uh, American football coach from the college world, so as as long as I can remember being a little kid uh, growing up SEC football games uh, on the sideline and you know my mom's a teacher too so a family of educators and coaches and um, so obviously high school tri-sport athlete soccer or for you you know everyone else outside (laughs) of American football yeah uh, and track and then you know American football then I graduated uh, high school and played college football at the University of Mississippi, Old Miss, and spent five years there. And then when I got done playing, I knew I wasn't going to go to the NFL. Um, I actually, when I graduated, I moved to China, uh, where I lived for a year and as a transition and and taught and coached American football over there. And then uh, I moved back right before COVID. And as soon as I got back to the United States, a a coach and a, a friend of mine reached out and was like, hey, you know, I don't know, where you are in your athletic career, but, you know, USA sports recruits from kind of like old athletic pools that transition into especially winter sports because we don't grow up training to do bobsled, right? That's what the Germans and the Austrians and the Swiss do. The Americans don't do that. Uh, So I actually, I applied and got accepted to a a show first called The Next Olympic Hopeful um, on NBC. COVID ruined the show. They canceled it. Um, and I just remember thinking, I was like, I still want to do this. I still want to try to apply myself and see if I could, you know, do this sport, which would be kind of cool. And uh, so I reached out to a couple of athletes at the time that were on the team. And then a, my coach, who would inevitably invite me to my rookie camp, and he was like, yeah, man, I, I remember you from the application. And he was like, I would love for you to, you know, do a virtual combine, get on some of these interview calls, just to make sure you're kind of a good fit for the team. Uh, and then, you know, if we like you, we'll hear, you'll hear back from us. And, uh, this, so this is like October of 2020, I think. So it's prime COVID, like everyone's going kind of mad. And, uh, we, I was about to go to work actually. And he, like, I hadn't heard back from him, this guy, this coach in like a month. And I was like, I guess I wasn't good enough. And he called me and he said, Hey man, um, have you not been getting my emails? And I was like, no, I don't want emails. And he said, man, I've been emailing you for two and a half weeks to get this paperwork done. He's like, I need you to drive from where you're living to upstate New York to start your rookie camp from bobsled. It's a 17 and a half hour drive. And I, he's like, I need you to be here by next oh my Friday. God. <laughs> so I was like, let's go. Let's just, let's just do it. So that's really kind of what perpetuated the journey. And, and it's kind of how I that's got started.
0: Crazy. So, let, we'll, go, we'll go back to that pursuing football. Obviously, American football is one of probably the hardest sports in the world to make it pro. Like, the turnover of athletes that actually do become professional is probably, what, less than 1% of all who try.
1: Yeah, I, I, think, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's 0.06%. Which it's it is
0: crazy. It's such a crazy number. Mm-hmm. But to play at college, obviously, that's a ve- it's, a, it's a very high level like the standard of, um, you know, college um, athletics, college football, what have you in America is, you know, exponentially higher than the rest of the world. So how did you sort of go, were you still, so when you got to college level football, were you still trying to pursue that career to the NFL? Uh,
1: No, I think, you know, I've always had really like reasonable and, and explicit expectations for myself and uh, you know, going into it, I knew college football was going to be the end of playing football for me. Um, you know, I was still considering coaching at the time or becoming an athletic director. Uh, so kind of more on the coaching administrative side, which is still an op- a possibility for me to, uh, kind of in the future. But uh, as a, for playing in the NFL, I kind of told myself, like, man, like these are going to be your four and five years left of playing college football enjoy them love them and be ready to transition when it's over which it's kind of a big thing for a lot of players nowadays um it's hard to transition out like a lot of uh we we had a guy come from the NFL Players Association and he came and spoke to us and he said a lot of college football players that don't make that 0.06 percent that go on to the NFL uh they it, it's like getting out of the military they don't really have an identity after the sport. And so a lot of them, it, it's it's a hard transition, but thank God, you know, I had a great support system around me, my family, my coaches, mentors, friends. Um, and then my opportunity to go, go live overseas, that was a big, uh, I guess, catalyst. I, I guess you could say it it helped me to transition into that life of like, oh, here's your sport, but I'm a, here's a world that exists an international sport that i had no idea and helped me kind of on this trajectory and bobsled in my career and what i do now
0: interesting so obviously when you're in college and you realize that football isn't the pursuit and you're not yet at that point of you know bobsled and these winter sports what was it that you were trying to pursue during college because obviously you've said there like you had four four and a bit years where you were like this is just my time to enjoy it but obviously you you're probably looking ahead from those four years. Like, you know, I need to get some things in place ready for finishing. So what, what were you pursuing during that time?
1: Yeah. A lot of the time I want to say I was really forward thinking, but most of the time, man, I was focused on playing football, drinking beer and hanging out with my buddies. Right. Like, uh, but I did have things in place, uh, organizations and networks that I kind of went out of the way to get, uh, I guess into or a part of to kind of set me, set myself up, you know, after football was done. Um, and man, like, I want to say, you know, it it wasn't because of me, it was because of all those that invested me along the way. And, and I I would say the biggest thing was just, I just keep showing up every day. Um, it's just to everything. And I would say yes to opportunities that I didn't even really know what the return was. And then, Come to find out years later, like that, those opportunities pay dividends. Um, and so, my advice, especially now to young, you know, college players, is, you know, the game that you're playing, the sport you're doing, whether it be, you know, soccer, football, basketball, you know, rifle, whatever you're doing, track, apply yourself, love the sport, but then grow yourself outside the sport. Um, maybe working with media relations or the administration. Or being involved on campus because those networks are what will set you up outside of the sport
0: yeah it's because it's not just there it seems to be a thing especially in the uk so for example i used to work in semi-pro football um soccer back mm-hmm. in the uk and there was a few lads who had spoken to and they so basically the way it works in you know european football is you you can go into an academy from like the age of five And they can be in the academy until you get to, say, um, scholarship, which is like 16 years old. They'll basically go to a college which is associated with a football club. And it's basically they start believing, oh, this is going to be my career because they're earning a bit of money. And then a lot of them, this is their entire identity. They go to these colleges where um, it's not like you're not getting – serious qualifications you may be just getting like some bits on here and there where it's not going to set you up for you know a a decent job outside so they're giving 110 percent to football and then they get to a team where they can then go to a professional contract or a development contract and clubs go no so they've literally everything around them just drops and a lot of these lads end up like i just didn't know what to do because then they have to take up semi-pro yeah. and a part-time job, where they're like, "I'm just stuck." So it's it's yeah. it's interesting to hear that you know you're you were putting things in place as you were going, because obviously a lot of people are just so focused on the end goal that mm-hmm. sometimes it blinds them to the fact that that can't necessarily be the end goal. If that makes sense.
1: Right, and I I think another mindset I had was you know i look at my life in terms of chapters and peaks and i kind of learned this from other people that were are and will continue to be more successful than me and they look at their lives in different you know mountain peaks different chapters right so you know high school whatever young young adult peak you know college football college athletics peak and then once that peak ends you got to come down and then you got to go find that next thing immediately because that will end for you one day and i feel like the people that can have that conversation with themselves earlier rather than later and I don't and, and it's not to say that you know you're not going to make it it's just saying that like hey if this doesn't work out I'm prepared and I can walk away happy at the end because I gave it all I could and I did that all I I did all I could do to be a better man or woman um and I used my platform to get there and now I can move on to the next peak of my life um you know with open arms and a smile on my face I think that's the, it's, it's it's a hard talk it's a humbling talk. But those who've kind of, you know, self-identified, self-realization through that, it it's paid dividends.
0: For oh, one hundred percent. And then, so you you mentioned you were thinking of getting into, um, uh, coaching, coaching football. Yeah. So mm-hmm. why did you decide not to pursue that eventually?
1: Uh, like I said, my dad's a college football coach. Um, I grew up around the game my whole life. Um, and I. It's, it's kind of a hard life in the United States uh, to be an American football coach in the college level. You move a lot. Um, it's hard to have a family, um, you know, and your life is very public. People are, you know, I remember going to school as a kid and, you know, people saying like, you know, why is your dad, you know, doing so bad as a coach? And, you know, I was 12 years old. I didn't know. Like, <laughs> I'm still playing Pop Warner football, but. Um, it, it's a hard life and it's for those that are super dedicated and, uh, and, and, uh, for me, it was more of like, you know, what's out there beyond the game of football. I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. Uh, I wanted to meet people like yourself and sport and football is something I'll always have that I can always go back to. What I won't be able to do my whole life is to kind of travel around the world. Uh, now with bobsled, still compete internationally uh and meet all these individuals and people from the international sports world that you know i wouldn't have met if i would have just stayed coaching football or gone the administration route
0: yeah it's the coaching route's really interesting because i'd list i listened to a bit of a podcast you did previously with one of the guys who used to work with your dad and mm-hmm. i had a look at your dad's wiki page because obviously it has a list of the places he coached all over the place like you can you you can't settle you really can't settle when you're doing a career like that and which I can understand why you kind of were, you know you wanted to move away from it but how was that as a kid with you know where your dad's constantly moving around and then like you know you're probably just getting settled somewhere and then he goes we have to up and move again how was that for you
1: it's it, thankfully I really only had one move that I can remember and it was when I was in you know the transition from seventh to eighth grade uh, we went from one SEC school to the next um, you know growing up a lot of my friends were like Elliot you don't really have a home and like you never grew up with the same kids that you went through elementary all the way to high school with uh, and you know because of that I had a really unique childhood I got to do a lot of things that other kids didn't really have the the uh, the privilege to do, and, and for that I'm really grateful, and I'm I'm thankful. I have an older sister, um, and it kind of you know formed us as kids, right? To go to my dad's games and be on the sidelines, and to meet all these great people, and um, all the guys that worked with my dad, they were like you know mentors and other father figures for me. So I got to see what you know success looked at looked like at a very young age, and how great men and leaders treat people around them. And it was very impactful for me. Um, whereas at the at the cost was we moved, and I remember the, I think it was late spring. I was in seventh grade, and my dad coming and picking me, picking me up from school, and was like, "Hey, man, like I need to tell you before it comes out on the news, but we're we're leaving. We're moving to a different state. You know, we'll be leaving in a few weeks, so you you have to go home and start packing your stuff." And that was pretty that was pretty hard on me as a kid. Um, cause I just wanted to hang out with my you know, my friends from the neighborhood, right? And uh but in the end it was worth it because it helped those connections and those bonds through my dad's profession helped, you know, kind of form me into the young man that I am today.
0: It's really interesting to answer that because I'm fascinated by the fact that even at the college level it's all over the news for you lot. Like college football seems to be as big, if not bigger than the NFL itself. Like, so how did you deal with that? Like, you know, your dad being in the news, like a, you know, a topic of discussion for the general public. Like how, was, how do you even cope with that as a kid?
1: Oh man, I, I guess, I guess it would be the same. I don't know, but very similar if my parents were politicians, I guess. I don't, I don't know. I, I know it was kind of fun because you know the other coaches kids that were my age we just kind of went through it together and um, i mean there were a few fights in school but nothing you yeah. know method, nothing too nothing too crazy uh, and you know a lot of the friends that we had in the two places that we lived in you know you know uh, arkansas and mississippi were you know the, the families always supported us and we always had great people around us that kind of gave our family you know, the space it needed and, and kind of that, I guess, privacy as much as you could get, yeah. you know, without your parent being a, an employee of the state, you know? So, and you know, I would I will definitely say that, you know, springtime was better than the fall, you know? Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a good day to go to school on a Monday after your dad's team lost pretty bad.
0: So. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine. Cause you know, his kids, because I don't, is it like, so over there, this is just me being completely oblivious to how it works. Mm-hmm. So people support college teams, like kids support college teams, or, or are they all mainly just like NFL?
1: No, man, I would say, well, it really depends on where you're from, but, you know, the, the southern region in the United States, college football is a religion. It's Saturday in the fall. It's, it's, Everyone has their team, and, and a lot of it, you know, it'll divide families. So, you know, I, I guess the best way I could put it to you would be, you know, Manchester United and and uh, Liverpool, right? So my that, that's Alabama, <laughs> that's Alabama and so Auburn.
0: It's funny you say that because so I'm a Liverpool fan, and my entire family mm-hmm. are United fans. So <laughs> when mm-hmm. we play each other, oh, they f- they won't speak to me, will not speak to me. They yeah, don't. and like so we beat them. 7-0 the last time we played them, which is outrageous. And obviously they're okay. they're all back in the UK, so I just called them up, just like pissing myself laughing on the phone. <laughs> my dad just looked at me and was like, Just fuck off. Don't speak to me. I was like, Yeah, just you're absolute you're <laughs> bragging right. It was so good. But so obviously you were gonna pursue coaching, you were gonna do all that, you didn't, you moved to China. So Yeah, Where did that come from and how was it? Yeah,
1: man, I'll I'll tell you, you know, my whole life was spent playing football and and kind of doing the football route. And I would say it was one of the first decisions that I made. And, and, you know, I had some kind of people I had asked and that mentored me a little bit. And it was one of those first decisions I ever made that was like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm getting into, but I'm just going to do it because I like doing hard things and I like challenging myself. And I wanted to travel and see the world. And I picked the hardest place to go to, (laughs) man. I'm from a small town in Mississippi where, you know, we have 20,000 people, right? You know, I moved to a city with 8 million people and I'd never been on a subway before and I can't even speak Chinese when I leave, but man, it was, China was, China was 14 months of just eye-opening experiences and not even just living there, but the people that I've met from around the world. Uh, some, some of my two best friends there were from the UK. Uh, they were from Liverpool. Just hilarious. like And so getting to live with, with people and, and work with people completely different from myself, it really broadened my horizon um, and the ability to connect with other people and really showed me that anything's possible, right? The, it really kind of set the foundation of, uh, of things that, I would take later on with me into bobsled and into my life now as I continue in sport and career.
0: That initial moment you landed in China, probably, you know, knowing you're not going to be going home for a long time because I've experienced the feeling of, you know, landing somewhere new and realizing I don't have a return ticket. How was that first moment when you stepped outside and realized there's a massive difference in culture and stuff?
1: I loved it, dude. I loved it. It was like uh, we had a coach in college. He would give us a quote about the uh, Spanish conquistador when he first landed in, you know, Mexico, South America. And he tur- he told his guys, he said, once the ships have landed, turn around and burn them because we're not going home. Like, don't give yourself a plan B. Make yourself survive. Make yourself thrive and adapt and become a better, you know, human from, this, from the situation because, you know, it's not as bad as what your mind perceives it to be. Um, and so I had the same thought when I landed in China for the first time, it was, it was a, you know, a brand new world. It was like being in a star Wars movie, But I, what I tell people cause compared to Mississippi, right? Like there ain't nothing in Mississippi. And I, um, man, I told myself like, I'm not going to go home. I'm going to be here for 14, 15 months and I'm going to make the most of it as I can. I'm going to milk it for as much as I can. Um, and I did that, and I made incredible connections and friends, you know, for a lifetime. And really, I I had a job teaching at a school, uh, but as soon as I got there, uh, the joke with foreigners in in China was that it's the island of misfit toys. So you would just have these people that would show up from every corner of God's green earth that would have these just kind of bizarre backgrounds <laughs> and 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 life stories. But through that, I met a guy who played American. Football, uh, he was from the United States, played college football in Michigan, and he started an American football, you know, semi-pro Chinese football league. Crazy. And so, uh, yeah, and so through him I got connected and ended up doing a project with the NFL, and they paid to fly my dad out to Shanghai. So
0: That's incredible.
1: Man, it, you know, it all works out in the end, man. Like, I, you know, people, and the one thing people I got home and a lot of people were like, why would you do that? Right. Even before I left, they're like, why would you do that? If you want to teach, just stay here. And I was like, no, it's not about teaching. Teaching is just the, the, the vector, the method to get me there. What I'm really in for is kind of like what you said at the beginning of this podcast. I'm in for the experience. I'm in for growing myself and, and making these connections with people from all over the world. I want to be a better man at the end of the day. And sometimes it means doing hard things and making yourself be uncomfortable and what I had in common with everybody that was there was we all kind of made that decision collectively. So yeah, it's It's a
0: decision. I'm very sort of fond of, and I really appreciate what it takes to make that decision because like, so when I moved out here eight months ago, it was like a, it was a thing I was so excited for, but it was also something that in the back of my head, I was always like, is it gonna work out? Is it gonna, am I gonna do this? Am I gonna do that? Yeah. But you kind of just have to go, you know, like, fuck it, just do it. And you, cause you can't, mm-hmm. if you dwell on it, you're never gonna make the decision and then you're always gonna sit on it for the rest of your life and be like, should, did I, should I have done it? Should I have not? You know, I kind of regret it. I never, like I'd never want to regret not making a decision based off the fact that I was, like, scared, basically.
1: Right, 100%. You know, fear, people that make those fear-based decisions, or what I call, like, the non-actions of of fear, not making the decision will hurt you in the longer term than, than making a decision. Because, you know what, even if you make the decision and it doesn't work out, you fail, or, you know, whatever doesn't work out, at the end, you can say, I tried. And I gave it my all and I can move on to the next thing in my life and say, you know what, whatever lessons I learned from that experience, I learned them and I can apply them to the next thing. Whereas like if you just sit on the couch and think, you know, what if, then you're, you're one of those coulda, shoulda, woulda guys. And that's, the world has enough of those. It's like,
0: I, so when I was doing my, I did my master's, we did like a placement in industry. So I worked for a rugby team. And i remember getting the call from my uni supervisor at the time he said there's this placement down mm-hmm. in london so i'm i was at uni in liverpool and he was like oh there's this placement down in london and i was like i've always been like overwhelmed by london it's a very weird place everyone's got a place to be it's very different to what i'm used mm-hmm. to and he was like there's this placement here if you want it and i was like i kind of just got to take it i don't necessarily know if it's going to work out but I've got to take it and I hated every day I was there just like I wasn't just it was because it was so I don't know London is probably a bit like New York you know like everyone's got a place to be and they'll barge through you if you don't if you if you don't get out of the way so as much as I hated it I appreciated the experience I learned from it and I realized like this isn't necessarily what I want to do as a career so I'm glad that I did it because if I, I think if I'd stayed closer to home, I'd probably have pursued the career and later realized actually this isn't what I want to do. If you get me? Right,
1: 100%. Yeah, dude. Yeah, 100%. And it gives you that chance to kind of adapt and uh, you, the earlier you do it, like you said, you can kind of mold the experience to how you want to interpret it and say like it is, is or isn't for me, let's move on. Right? So that's that's awesome, man. I have, I have respect for it, dude. I, it's 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 hard, and I'm sure you've had friends and family that say, "Why are you doing what you do?" And that's the hardest voice to listen to. It's not it's not your inner voice. It's it's the people closest to you yeah. that say, "What are you doing?" To be fair, you know what I mean.
0: I have probably the best support network in terms of family because as soon as I go, "Oh, this has come up," they did like when the thing to come to Australia came up. They just went, "Take it, just do it." No, like awesome. there was no, there was that's no pushback. Awesome. Like obviously, people towards towards the like when I was leaving, I remember like people were like, "Oh, do you have to go?" Because it's a case of like you know just missing people. But the moment mm-hmm. the decision came, everyone just went, "Do it! Don't say, don't ever yeah. say no." Which you know I can always appreciate. So in terms of support networks for you, what was it like? Because obviously you, your dad works in high performance. Your mum's an educator. So what was it that support network around you like?
1: Oh man uh, my dad I remember telling him first that I was I took the job and was moving to China and I remember he kind of said the same thing he's like, son like you, it's a big world and you need to go out and experience it if you want to make big things happen And I was like, you know what you're right like <laughs> I want to make big things happen. I want to do cool stuff right like I want I want to be different. I don't, I don't want to go work a nine to five. You know, live that white picket fence American dream. Like, you know, that's something that our parents here in the United States lived. And for me, it was not something that I really wanted. I wanted to do different things. And so uh, he was really supportive. Now, my mom, on the other hand, she's a little bit more traditional. She's a really kind of small, tiny southern lady. And I remember calling her up on the phone. And my dad was like, you need to tell her you're leaving. It's been a week. Um, and so I called her up on the phone and I remember holding the phone this far away from me because she was just, you're going where, you know, wait, you, what what are you going, what do you know about China? You don't speak Chinese. And so, and then finally she warmed up to, you know, me being gone and, uh, once you, once you could show from, you know, sometimes parents, it's like mama, okay, I'm safe. I'm, I'm doing what, you know, I've always been taught to do from you guys is, is your, you know, your child and you use my parents, you know, and so it all works out. And then in, in football, too, my dad was always supportive. You know, my, I have great parents, man. Like, I'm blessed with great, great family, great parents. Um, they've always been there for me through every endeavor. Uh, they might ask a lot of questions on what I'm doing. Uh, but, man, like, at the end of the day, they, they love me and they support me through everything.
0: It, honestly, it makes the world a difference when you've got that support network behind you who, like, you know, you, your dad where he said you need to go and experience the world because probably if he'd also said, you know, you can't speak Chinese, you can't do this like your mum did, mm-hmm. it would make that decision probably a lot more harder to make. Right. So.
1: Right, dude. Yeah, man. It would have been, I probably wouldn't have gone, really. I mean, I, he's my best friend and one of my, you know, my biggest mentors, so. If he would have been like, nah, man, like, I don't think this is for you, I, I, I think I would have hung the cleats up proverbially and just been like, okay, I'm not going. But it's funny you say that too, because because of that I went, I just remember there were probably 10 or so people that I talked to, um, you know, back in the States while I was living in China that come, I found out later on after I got home or while I was still there that they had decided to make a step like that too because they saw somebody doing it and not just talking about it, not just, you know, critiquing on the internet, but they physically saw me and my friends in China. And I remember one girl, she's like, hey, I'm going to go live in Spain. Um, and she's still living there. And, you know, it was it was crazy to see. Um, and just it's like that kind of positive energy of just saying yes to do things. Like you said, like, you know, I'm sure you you've got friends back home that were like, Man, I want to go. I'm to go travel to Australia. I want to go do stuff now. Like you're living the life, and you know your life might not. You're like, man, I'm just doing regular stuff every day. I just do it in a different place. Yeah. But to them, it's like it's the act of saying yes. It's the act of like I'm going to do hard things because I've never had to do a hard thing in my life. Yeah, so, it's, it's,
0: it's funny cool. because I have a friend who came. He was in Melbourne until recently, and I hadn't spoken to him in a few years. But I used to I used to train with him um, MMA and when he was in melbourne i was like oh i'm coming out i'll meet up with you so when i met up with him we got talking about like why he came out and stuff and he was like so one time at training this is like three four years ago he asked me because i had just taken a trip to switzerland one weekend just to, on my own just to go snowboarding chill and he was like how, why how do you do it how do you do it? i'm like just book a flight and go <laughs> just book it and go and then he was like mm-hmm. when you explained it to me so simply he was like i just need to do it and i was like It felt so good knowing that he, like, I'd helped someone just make that, that leap to just sort of go and do it. Because for me, like, I remember the the first time I did a big trip, it was like, that was hard to do because it's like, oh, you know, it's a completely different world. But then after that, it's like, just book a flight and just go and just see how it goes. And you might enjoy it. You might not. You just, you know, you run with it and you see, see what comes (laughs) of it kind of thing.
1: Yeah, dude. Yeah, man, it's, and that's it really, like, if I know we're going to get into it, but that sums up bobsled all in one all in one go. Just get in the sled, man. Like, don't make it harder than it needs to be. Just get on the plane, book the trip, have a conversation with somebody around the world that you don't know. Just do it, man, because you don't know what's going to come from it, you, you know, the connections, the, uh, the growth that you'll receive on the end of it, dude. It's It's deep. You can't put a number. Oh, down. yeah,
0: 100%. The way you were recruited, you know, through the pooling of athletes, it's really interesting because mm-hmm. I've never – until I'd come out here, they do it for the AFL, the Australian football. And – Right. It's really, so they recruited um, a former basketball player, college basketball player, Mason Cox, I think. He'd never played mm-hmm. Australian football in his life. And now he plays full-time professional over here. So I was like, that's really interesting. Then for you to say that they did the same for you, because I'd always wondered how people get into sports like bobsled, these more, you know, you know, you would say smaller sports in terms of coverage, because it's not an, you know, as a kid, you don't, you go, I want to be a football player, a basketball player. You don't go, I want to be a bobsled athlete. It's very, it's it's very (laughs) different. So yeah. When that opportunity came around, how how did you feel about it all?
1: Uh, at first, I didn't think it was real. Uh, and like you said, it's just such a niche sport that I was like, surely there's professionals that live up in the mountain areas of the United States that do this, you know, have been doing this since, you know, I was playing Pop Warner football when I was, you know, 10, which there's maybe a few, maybe a couple, but really nothing, dude. Like, USA, they recruit from old athletic pools, and the sports that translate the best are a background in American football, a background in track and field, um, and then there's a couple other like outliers. Uh, CrossFit's another one, uh, just pure athletic ability. And what they really look for is it, and you know because you study sports, it's it's the transition of athletic prowess. Really, it's like okay. Can you be powerful and strong? Can you function on in a team dynamic on the men's side, which four-man bobsleigh is all team dynamic? Uh, Can you pay attention to details and can you commit to something that's bigger than yourself? Um, Which is a big one, right? You know, you can pull up any Joe Schmo off the street that you know can run a fantastic forty time, but you can't put him in a team environment ready to compete um if he hasn't had that background coming up in team sports right he doesn't know right and that's no fault of his own it's just it's something that you i don't even know what you would call it like it's like social programming coming up through the layers of sports as a as a kid and they do it all over the country or all over the world i mean so it's it's cool um it's it's a very unique sport it's a blessing to do it it's fun it's scary as hell like I'm not not gonna lie. Like if you if you're not a little, everybody's scared to do bobsled. Anybody that's not scared is a liar. Like it's it's just something your CNS is telling you, don't do it. Like you're going 85 miles an hour, which is 120 130 kilometers an hour, down an icy track, and you're pulling five Gs of pressure in the back. Um, It's it's you pull the same amount of Gs as a fighter pilot does in the cockpit, but you do it. In a skin tight suit, no protection and really between your, the ice, like if you fall out of the sled, like it's just ice, like you'll get burned, right? So it's, it's, a uh, there's nothing in the world like it, dude. Like I would love to take you down sometime in a bobsled. Okay. I would
0: love to try something like that. It'd be crazy.
1: <laughs> some of my, actually some of my good buddies in the international circuits are a couple of the British guys and they're. They're great dudes. Like they're they're fun as hell, and they like to have a good time. And they are just good old, they're just good old proper lads, man. Like I mean, they're they're a good time. So
0: yeah, it's a it's a it's a crazy sport. Like the I can imagine because obviously there's similar G's going through your you know your neck and your back as there is a Formula One driver, which is in, insane yep. to say. But the first time you went in the bobsled. <laughs> like was your brain just screaming at you like i can't do this
1: yeah yeah i mean it's an experience like no other your cns like i said it 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 does your brain doesn't know how to process what's going on around you and what you're hearing and what you're feeling um and i have to take motion sickness pills every time i get in the sled because i get i mean i get car sick if i'm if i'm not looking out the front window of my vehicle Like if I'm right, and and I do bobsled, which is funny. My my girlfriend as well; she's on the USA bobsled team on the women's side, and we're we're the same. Like we both have to take Dramamine to to keep us, you know, kind of mellow without throwing up. Uh, But dude, it's it's not. People want to say like, oh, is it it must be like a roller coaster? Nah, man. Like it's not a roller coaster. (laughs) It's just so much more intense, and you're you're shaking, you're vibrating. It's loud you can feel how fast you're going and then the G force is just pressing down on you the whole time. So it's, uh, but the longer I've been doing it now, the more composed you can be in the back of the sled because I'm a push athlete. So there's two athletes. There's the pilot who obviously drives a bobsled, uh, and the push athlete, the brakeman is colloquial is what we're called. And we just ride in the back, man. We push the sled where the sled dogs get in and our job is to ride good, count the curves and pull the brakes at the end. It's crazy. That's it. It's really a simple. Like, there's really not much to compared to American football, where you have to learn a whole playbook and language of its own, and then play in front of eighty thousand people. This sport is really, in in the term like order of operations, it's really simple. But what plays the biggest effect is your mind, right? Because your mind is saying, "Man, what if we crash?" Because crashing's scary. You know, you can get really hurt. Every time you get in the sled, your brain is like, "Dude, don't get in the sled, man! Like, go enjoy your life, do something else." But it's it, every time it, but it's a, it's like an adrenaline spike. It, it's a high because your brain is telling you this is a hard thing. It's scary. Don't do it. And then you basically have to tell your brain to shut up. And you essentially, in the most purest form, you have to face fear head on. And then when you do it, it's like you come out on the other end, kinda like taking the trip or moving off to another country, you get out of the sled and you're like, let's go again. Let's let's do it again. Even after you crash, you have to say, I gotta get back in the sled and I'm scared as hell. And that's okay.
0: So when when you've obviously crashed, what A, what was the first crash like? Because it's probably I can imagine it's as crap as it is, it's probably good to get it out of the system and done. But B, what's also the worst crash you've had?
1: Yeah, I've been in two crashes. Um, They were actually back-to-back, which is really funny. Um, My first crash was in a two-man bobsleigh. And kind of to back up, as a brakeman, your job is to learn the track that you're sliding on. So you memorize the curves and how the track feels so you can kind of prepare yourself in the back of the sled and you know when to pull the brakes at the end because you can't pull them before. And so you know, last November we were, I was in the back of a two man sled and we were going down a track that I've been down probably 80 times now. So you really just focus on just breathing in the back, just riding good, knowing where you are, just, just staying calm, keeping your heart rate as low as possible. Cause as soon as it gets elevated, you're gonna you're gonna panic, right? Um, and we were coming around a curve and I could feel my pilot kind of losing control of the sled and we just You just kind of feel it slightly, you're airborne, and then your head is on the ice at 80 miles an hour, and you're just, and that's really all you hear. It's really, the sound is what is so disorientating. Um, But then once you kind of understand, like I'm upside down, the sled's on top of me, you know, I'm on my shoulders on the ice, which we wear a burn vest, so we don't get a third degree burn from the ice. It's like, essentially a Kevlar vest, right? And, um, you just kind of hold in there and you kind of try to keep your heart rate down as low as possible still. And then it ends and then you try to get out of the sled before the sled starts sliding backwards with you in it.
0: It's so wild. Like I can't, I can't even imagine that feeling of like realizing you're upside down and your head is just scraping. Obviously you've got a helmet on, but you'd still, it's that probably crunching sound that's Oh, it goes through me even thinking about it
1: <laughs> yeah dude and the you know there's been some pretty bad ones i was in a pretty bad four-man crash The literally the next run right after and um but the, the cool thing about my first crash was we crashed i'm like it's happening you know keep the heart rate down stay calm i got out of the sled and you know because the bobsleigh track there's a low point and the finish dock is actually really high up because you have to you have to deplete the speed as you go up, right? You can't just stop the sled. And so the sled started going backwards and my pilot was still in the sled and I'm standing outside the track and the medical guys are running over. They're like, are you good? And I was like, man, I'm good. And I've, and this is just an attestment to sports and how I was brought up, but I remember getting back in the track and sprinting up the outrun past the finish line. And in my mind, I was kind of banged up a little bit. My head kind of hurt, I had a little bit of ice burn, just a little bit. And in my mind, all I could think about was finishing, right? And it just shows you, in somebody who studies sports and, and high performance, it just shows you what, it's almost like an indoctrination. It doesn't matter, like, what, you, what your body's willing to essentially endure, but what you've been trained is to overcome an obstacle, Right. And I just remember sprinting up the outrun and my teammates are standing at the finish dock and they're like, oh my God, what are you doing? And I was like, I honestly have no idea. My mind just went to autopilot.
0: <laughs> so, it's that winning mentality though, isn't it? Like just by the sounds of it, yeah. that is built into you, it's ingrained in in your DNA. Mm-hmm. So when you're you know, preparing for competition, what things are you doing to get yourself there for that, like, you know, to win every single time.
1: Yeah, man. It, it, the the four man bobsleigh is the ultimate, I would say it's compared to American football and, you know, soccer too. It's the ultimate team sport. It's you and three other guys. You got to warm up and you got to perform and sprint in the coldest of environments. And then you got to get in the sled at the same time and then get in there together and make it a good ride down, and mentally, you know, the hardest part is warming up to do the sprints in the, you know, sub, man, I'm from the south, like, it doesn't snow where I'm from, and then a a winter sport where it's nothing but ice, man, like, it's, that's a challenge to warm up to that, so it's a lot of dynamic stuff, a lot of uh, plyometrics just to get the body going, and then a lot of sprinting, um, and then headspace-wise, man, it's, I try to keep myself in the moment, keep myself grounded, and kind of focus on, I don't ever think about getting down to the bottom of the run. I just think about what I need to do in the next step of the process. So if it's, you know, we got three sleds ahead of us, it's, okay, I need to get my helmet on. Okay, what's next? I got to help get my sled to the line. I'm on the line. I need to brush my ice spikes off. When I push the sled, I got to focus on hitting the bunk to get into the sled. I just think in steps of progression – small steps at a time which will lead to a bigger outcome
0: it's so it's so interesting i love the the psychology behind athletes because like i've had really interesting conversations with ultra runners and stuff like that where they're you know they go it. like for you the build-up is it can be like it's a full day can be like you know you're, you're waiting all day so you're you know if you're not like that high performance mentality you're probably playing in your head and bringing yourself down and it's like with ultra runners they have that throughout the entire event and it's interesting because it's still got comparisons in terms of like you probably have points where you're like oh fuck i can't do this i don't know what to do and then you have to bring yourself back down and be like no i've got it i've trained i'm here yep. i'm just gonna get it done and i'm gonna you know gonna do my best and that's it
1: yeah Yeah, dude, 100%. And it is that mentality because sometimes that little voice in the back of your head says, don't get in the sled, man. Don't do it. And then uh, you literally have to tell that voice to sit down and don't let it have a seat at your table because that voice will only bring doubt and denial in what you're trying to do. And like I said earlier, a lot of that mentality is, it's the burn the ship's mentality. It's I'm here. I'm here for a reason. I'm not going back. You know, the only way to go is forward. And if that brings, you know, hardship and pain and, you know, at times, you know, <laughs> suffering from crashing, they, it's worth it because at the end, the, outco- the the potential outcome far outweighs not doing it, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Oh, 100%. The, so the last game of football you played to the first... Bob's like competition. You did. Was there a difference in your approach, and or did it feel like you know you'd you'd never left competition?
1: I th- I think it was more of the I I never left competition, but it was more it was different. that the atmosphere changed, the environment changed, but it was still this. You know, a lot of people like to call it different things. Some people call it a dog mentality. Some people call it the competitors' edge. I just relate it to ready to be in a fist fight, right? Like it's, it's you're ready to attack whatever you need to do to compete and to win. And, to, and, and at the end of the day, it, it might not even be all about winning, but it's about representing something bigger than yourself and being accountable to something and somebody that isn't yourself. And the, the, the highest achieving athletes and people I know in my life are people who have taken that concept and have really made it in their own and their identity of saying like what makes me successful is when I know that I'm accountable to other people and I know how to be to represent and be a part of something that is and will always be bigger than me and taking that lesson and, and applying it to everything it's 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 helped in so many things but at the end of the day man it's a blessing i remember I remember sitting on the line before my first race and I was thinking to myself, man, I was thinking about the same scenario between my last football game. And I was like, if somebody would have told me back in, uh, you know, 2017 in the fall that I was going to be a bobsledder for USA, I probably would have slapped them because I wouldn't have believed them. And, you know, a few years later, here I am after a trip to the end of the world and back, and then here I am still competing and doing a great sport And man, I can, it's only, it's a God thing, man. Like I, I can't put it into words how blessed I've been, but given the platform that I have now and the opportunity, I just want to keep making the most of it and just keep inspiring and helping people come up along the way that, you know, just say yes to doing hard stuff because you don't know what will happen at the end. Like if I would have said no to driving 17 and a half hours to Lake Placid and you know, by the end of the week.
0: Where would you be now? What would you be doing?
1: exactly exactly and i you know through the sport i've made you know friends for a lifetime international and here in the program i met my girlfriend now like it man it's it is a blessing dude it's it is a hard sport but at the end it's it's
0: so worth it though so worth it so that it's interesting you say so you met your partner through obviously bob so you're both elite athletes yeah so how how is that? Because obviously, you're not go, you're not just going out for like drinks and stuff like that. Like you're probably both like regimented, going to bed at this time, doing this. You know, I've got this at this time. Like, how do you both cope with the both of you being professional?
1: She she is awesome, dude. She is she is a rock star. She and I would say like she she is more of an accomplished athlete than I am, right? Like, and I have no shame in admitting that. Like, she is. She was a, uh, a a Division one hurdler in college, so she comes from the track background. Where I'm football, so we have conflicting ideas on training <laughs> and regiment. So all the time, we're kind of like, yeah, well, what if we do this, you know? And so it's <laughs> it's really funny. And uh, we actually, it's our off season now, uh, and so we were doing our workout yesterday, and we were like, well, what do we really do? We don't know what to do now in our off season because we're so we're so used to sticking to a pretty tight. Schedule and training regiment. Now we can kind of ease off a little bit, but man, she she's awesome, and um, I think it's really unique that we get to do the sport together, and um, you know, not a lot of people can say that. So it's that's it. It's, it's, it's Like,
0: how many people can say they do the same sport together? You know, <laughs> on the same, basically on the same team. Like, it's it's crazy. But you mentioned the off season there, mm-hmm. so. What what do you do with your off-season? Because obviously you've got to maintain a level of ability, but you also need to take time away because otherwise you'll just get a, eventually, you know, it could be a month, could be a year, you could, you'll could, you end up burned out. So what what do you do in that time?
1: Man, it's a fine balance, and I'm still trying to learn the balance. Uh, football, I was really used to just hammering away all the time. Hammer, hammer, hammer. We're going to lift heavy and we're going to condition. It doesn't matter if it's spring, summer, in season. Whereas this sport, I have to kind of take my ego and put it aside, and I have to learn more from our, our track teammates who are more used to taking that time off in the offseason and really tailoring a specific program to the athletic movement that they're doing. So it's literally two conflicting ideas of training, right, um, which is cool because I've learned so much from it. So during in-season and building up, like – right before it's a lot of explosive work plow metrics, heavy lifts, heavy dynamic lifts. Um, and then off season now, it's more of just maintain and conditioning so we can kind of cross train a little bit more. Um, we're not really focused as much on sprinting. Uh, we can really kind of get back into that, you know, that summer shape that I need to need to get back in. It's been, a, <laughs> it's been a long winter, my man. Uh, so actually we're leaving to go to Belize, uh, in the morning actually. So, just spend some time on the beach get some sun and come back and uh man just be, be outside. refreshed yeah dude that's 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 it because like you said they're guys that'll train and they'll keep sprinting and doing all that stuff year round and they just get burned out and their bodies can't handle it because it is a physically demanding sport
0: obviously so the sport itself if we look at it from a sort of you know key performance indicator you need to be powerful as powerful mm-hmm. as possible you need to be strong but you also need to be fast because obviously that you know the initial to push the sled but also to be able to sprint as fast as you can in that initial phase yep so what kind of so obviously you mentioned there that you do a lot of plyometric, sprinting heavy strength training but so how do you split up your week in terms of training
1: yeah and i everyone's got their different methods um during the season stuff right before the season or kind of the end of the summer before we kind of get into our team testing. I mean, we're sprinting a lot. I mean, it's, you know, three, at least three times a week uh, and then lifting really two uh, with a big emphasis on, you know, the power movements, uh, power, clean, all the different variations of that. Um, I'm still a big proponent of deadlifts. Uh, so all the deficit deadlifts, banded deadlifts, really anything to kind of, tease out those different muscle groups. Uh, and then obviously the plow metrics, man, like depth jumps, anything with the med balls. And we do a lot of work with the prowlers. So the sled pushes, um, before we can get on the ice at our ice house. Uh, but it's, it, it's a lot. And everyone, like I said, everyone's kind of got their different, their different sauce, their different method on what they do. Um, and the cool thing about the sport is there's no one size, you know, fits all for the different athletes. Um, you know the pilots might be doing something. The women they might be doing something. You know my girlfriend she might be doing something different than what I'm doing and what I'm working on. She's more of a established sprinter than I am, so I really have to focus more on my sprinting technique. It's kind of the thing that I've been working on a lot recently. Whereas coming from American football, we don't sprint, dude. Like we don't we don't do none of that um, mechanically. Why? Like in, in terms of mechanics, so. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's fun though. It, it's fun because we can kind of mix mix and match, um, working with our strength staff up at the uh, the training center, and and they help us out a lot too. So,
0: they, it's interesting because obviously sprinting is it's it's an art of its own. Like we look at it as if like oh anyone can do that, yeah, but dude. when you really break it down into the different phases of the sprint, it's so hard to get right because. I've had to teach. We like we used to go through sprint technique with athletes, um, and it's really interesting to tr- to understand that actually, like not everyone gets you know sprint like sprint technique. They don't get that actually, there's more to it than just going as fast as you can. So, for you, how is it being a beginner at something like that? Obviously, you you're a beginner at a bobsled, but then you've gotten proficient, more and more proficient with it but you're still like you say sprinting still your like your main thing that you need to work on so how has it been a beginner with that
1: man it's it's humbling and it, i find myself a lot of the time is is checking my ego at the door because I, I, what i understand is i can't get better at something if my ego gets in the way and that's okay because i think a lot of high performers realize that like somebody else has the keys to victory that i need to be taught and i need to apply them and if if I can't do that, then I'll never be successful. Uh, a lot of our teammates are high-performing sprint athletes. Uh, one of them, uh, one of my good friends, he, was, uh, he ran in the Summer Olympics as a sprinter. And so learning from him for free too, like that's invaluable knowledge of him breaking down the sprint, the different phases, and really focusing on what I'm doing. And I'll give you like a key indicator for me a lot of the, now I really focus on, is power output into the ground and long strides at the beginning the first five ten meters just lever levering those steps out and putting as much force back out into the ground as possible whereas a lot of people see sprinting and they just think how fast can i put my pick my feet up and turn them over which in reality the best sprinters are generating an enormous amount of force and covering a lot of ground in as few steps possible and so that is all applicable to pushing the sled on the ice it's just force down into the ground and out in away, and at long steps and making it as efficient as possible
0: do you train much of the triple flexion of the sprint so do you do any strengthening work for that like you know the hip flexes and yeah I do. that sort of stuff
1: yeah i would say the most common and prevalent injury in the sport you know besides getting a little bit of ice burn here and there is people you know working on their hips and their uh hip flexors and the triple extension like it is so demanding pushing the sled uh because you really have to focus on getting triple extension right off of the block and it uh man especially during summer training it starts to wear on you so a lot of the stuff i do now that you know my girlfriend's been great she's been teaching me a lot of uh triple extension work and hip work and um yeah it's 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 humbling but it's fun though it's a challenge um and it, it, at the end you know kind of the overarching theme you know do hard things and it'll make you better in the end so
0: yeah uh, as from like the coaching perspective i'm just interested in this what sort of testing parameters do you do you know like at the start of the the preseason what what sort of testing stuff will you go through
1: yeah our federation's going to change their testing standards um we used to have a combine but now they've changed it to a push standard, so we have an indoor ice house that we push on. Which you can see, I'll, I can send you videos later of what it kind of looks like. Um, but we have to meet, you know, certain times, and they want to see different t- criteria. So when you program, you want to be able to peak within your programming at that date, so you're at the you're at the top of physical fitness, speed, and power at that date, so you can put up great numbers. And then on the men's side based off those numbers you get kind of put into a four man team to push with as a as a group as a team and that's really kind of what you're looking for so have a good individual push which means peaking yeah at that time in the late summer from your programming get put on a good group for four man push and then putting up good times and velocities and then from there that's kind of how you get you get up to the upper echelons of the pilots and
0: yeah and
1: it's but I will say too like it's a marathon, man. Like we measure our success in, 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 uh, groups of four years. Whereas like some athletes, most teams and athletes measure their success in one season. A lot of our success is built in a quad or every four years per Olympics. So everybody on the team, their goal is to make the Olympics, right? Like there's no reason that you like, there's nobody on the team that'll tell you that's not the goal. If it's not the goal then why are you here? Right. Um, But it's it is you have to it's humbling because you have to say to yourself like this is a marathon man like I can't just be out I can't I'm not going to make the Olympic team tomorrow I got to keep working keep hammering away keep improving because there's always something whether that be sprint mechanics pushing the sled on the ice loading the sled being a better teammate in the garage learning how to work on the sleds because that's a big thing too a lot of people don't know is out of 100 percent of the time we only really slide on the ice maybe 15 percent. Uh, the rest of the time is is working on the sleds and moving them around. It's a lot of equipment. It's expensive, so just being the best teammate and support, you know, in the garage and around the pilots as you can. That's where a lot of people kind of fall off the ladder, or they can because they might be the best athletes, but they suck at being a teammate.
0: So, on that, what does it make? What is it to be a good teammate? Uh,
1: kind of just knowing knowing how to move the sleds. Knowing kind of what your pilot needs, kind of anticipating, you know how to align the the blades on the sleds, which are called runners. How to race align them, how to work on them, how to handle them. Um, you know, a four-man sled can cost up to three hundred thousand dollars, and then a set of runners or the blades can cost oh, up to fifty to sixty grand per set of four. So it's Lots. it's very important to be very careful with them. Uh, learning how to sand them correctly and, and just it's just attention to detail is the, like the overarching thing and yeah if you can be a good brakeman and a good teammate in the garage have great attention to detail help your pilot out as much as possible because the pilot he's the dude taking you down safe like on race day or a training day the last thing you want him to worry about is man i hope the runners are put on correctly like dude you need to, you need to drive the sled man because i'm in the back and my well-being is in your hands like so mm.
0: yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't think it would like I don't know what number I had in my head to be honest of how expensive it would be yep. to take part in the sport, but in because ter- I wanted to ask this as well, so it's probably a good time to get onto it. In terms of funding, what is it good for do you get good funding for this kind of sport or is it like on the lower end in terms of compared to other Olympic sports?
1: Yeah, well, I would say we're on the lower end. Uh USA bobsled is not a rich federation. We don't have much. Uh, We have some small sponsors. And if you're the top athletes uh, on the team per season, based off the testing criteria, you'll get a small stipend every month and your travel paid for. But all the rest of us, man, like we're self-funded. We have jobs. We have our personal sponsors. Um, So we really are citizen athletes, man. Like We we have two different lives and we live two different lives. Um, And it's... I think it's cool that way because, you know, that's what it was like being a student athlete in college. Uh, but it does get harder the older you get and, you know, you're like, man, I'm trying to buy a house, you know, like I'm trying to do stuff. I'm trying to travel still. And, um, you know, you got to think about bobsled too and your career. And so, yeah, it's cool. So I'm always looking for, you know, like new sponsors and, um, people to work with in collaboration. I've had a couple before. Um, so it's great. And, you know, it, it, Our federation is good in supporting, you know, helping you find those kind of outlets to to get that stuff.
0: Which is good. But what what job do you do alongside the bobsled then?
1: Yeah, I'm a diplomat, so I work in sport diplomacy. So a lot of my job is, man, talking about sports internationally. And I help arrange uh, sending our sport envoys from America, coaches and players overseas to do different camps and clinics and, Um, It's a passion of mine that I didn't even know I had until I lived in China. It's a full circle. It all comes back, and I find myself now kind of building my own personal brand of being an international athlete through bobsleigh and then my career and passion in international sports. And uh, basically my theory is sports are are kind of the universal unifying thing. You know, everybody can get together and watch a game of, of football, right, watch a match you've seen it in guitar, you've seen it, it brings the world together in a way that politics and everything else can't do. The only thing, the only other thing that I think can bring people together is food, food and sports. So I think that that's the main thing. And man, it's, it's, it's a passion of mine. And I got a, I got a couple of side projects I'm working on, um, or I would love to do, you know, doing more speaking engagements internationally with the power of sports. And then I really want to kind of explore doing a small docu-series of, you know, different um, cultural sports and how they relate to a, a, a culture's identity through food and, and tradition and, and drinks and all that good stuff, so. Yeah, uh, that's
0: super interesting because, like, I'd love to do something, like, along those lines, you know, of, um, like, going to – so going to a football match, for example, and just mm-hmm. rather than – Talking about the football speaking to the fans and understanding what draws them back week on week on week because right. it's such a passion like it's ever it's everything for people and to actually go and understand it because I'm not sure if you've seen it but the welcome to welcome to Wrexham documentary on Disney oh. plus so um, essentially a club in the UK um, in Wales called Wrexham bought out by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney and yeah. the club had struggled for I think it was 15 years. They the longest time they'd spent out of the football league. So we have four divisions, and then after that is outside of the football league. It's so the longest time they'd spent out of it. They've bought the club, and but they went around interviewing the fans and speaking to you know the, the owners of the pub who own the pub outside the ground, and they talk about that club as if it's like everything to them, and it will be at their dying breath to talk about Wrexham. And to me, it's fascinating how people can, you know, it's just – it becomes everything. Like, jobs don't matter. Like, right. you know, problems don't matter because of that sport specifically.
1: Yeah, man. I Like, I've always said, I told my friends in England, man, like, I've never been to a professional – I've never been to a legit football match. I've seen a couple of MLS teams play here in the United States. I want to come – to a Liverpool and Manchester United game match, <laughs> and just experience it and bandwagon the home team, and just mm. talk all the shit. Like that—that's that's what I want to do, man. Like, and I want to experience that. I want to talk to the fans, and I want to be in that atmosphere. And then I want to do the same thing uh, with a cricket match in Pakistan or India, and just go and experience. And like, hey, man, like what? And start interviewing people and say like, we what? What about this? do you love? And why do you keep coming back to it? Right. I think it's interesting. It plays in to the whole cultural identity of sports and what it does in bringing people together. Um, I, and I always think about back in the day, like when you think about the Roman empire and they had gladiators competing in the Coliseum, like essentially that's the precursor to modern day sports, right? That and the, the ancient Olympics, like it brought people together from different city States and warring parts of the, The world that they knew of at the time and sports was a unifying factor for them to compete instead of killing each other, you know, which they did still, but whatever.
0: No, the the different cultures in different sports is, is something that's always fascinated me because, like, not necessarily the highest level, like, you know, you said you wanted to go to a Liverpool United game. When you go below that and you see the people who their teams aren't successful, right? But there's just something ingrained in their DNA that they love this team they you know they follow this athlete or what have you they follow these events and it's so fascinating that they can do that and carry on doing that even without the you know the success like being a Liverpool fan is great because recent years we've won everything we can win (laughs) Great. so but being like a Barnsley fan where you're getting you know you're getting relegated one season and then you you maybe stuck there for two years you come back up a league and then you go back down again like right understanding what makes people tick at that level is super is super interesting to me
1: yeah yeah dude that's it is awesome that is that is something that I want to keep exploring and you know God willing with my career and you know I'm open to everything so any opportunity that I I'll always say yes so hopefully keep exploring this route and, and put something together I think it'd be super cool but
0: yeah, so going back to the bobsled um, and obviously the competition side of things, where are some of the places that that this has managed to take you to in the world?
1: I've only competed in the United States so far, um, mm. so hopefully next season the goal is to get to Europe. Uh, that was kind of my goal this season. My the pilot I was working with, he didn't really, uh, it wasn't really the same goal for him, so it's kind of hard on that side for me. Uh, you know, kind of being. Married to a pilot is, you know, your success as a push athlete is, you know, it, it, it is up to him, right, to make the race. And so uh, so this next season is really to get to Europe, man. And there's, there's a bunch of tracks in Europe. Uh, Germany's got two. Switzerland has one. Austria has one. France has one, but not really many people go to that one. Uh, there's one in Norway. So, yeah, man. And bobsleigh in Europe is big. Uh, my girlfriend was in Europe touring for two months this past season, and she was telling me like all the time, you know, there are fans in Germany that know your name because bobsleigh is something they grow up doing, and it's sick, dude. It, it is.
0: Yeah. cool. So, what things are you putting in place now to try and push yourself to get to Europe? Being the obviously the goal.
1: Right. Uh, we just got done with our national champs. Uh, that's what I was doing last week, and got first place in the four man um, which is great it was great congrats mate. Thanks. yeah it wasn't a big it wasn't a big <laughs> pool of, of, of people competing but just to show up and get more practice and just keep hammering and just keep doing the hard thing that no everybody's not willing to do uh, I, I think that's that's where a lot of people make up where you can make up a lot of progress and just keep showing up and and for me right now it's taking a step back and saying like hey the season's over Let's take a break. Let's kind of focus on the other aspects of your life and and kind of recover. And then once it's time to get hammering at the season again, it, it's full bore and like it's it's make this a reality. And and there's the only way to do that is through hard work. So, um, but measurable wise, um, I've got some numbers I want to be hitting. Um, get back on the strict diet plan. Uh, but for right now, I'm gonna enjoy some some cold enjoy beer. It, <Yeah>. Yeah, dude, so, yeah.
0: Yeah. The, so on that, the hard work and stuff like that, for anyone who wants to make it as an athlete at any level in any sport, what three things would you tell them to do?
1: You got to be dedicated. Um, don't be one foot in, one foot out. If you make up the mind, your mind to do something, commit to it fully because at the end of the day, like I said, you might fail, but you are going to be a better person at the end. And just commitment. Um, and, and the second thing would probably be just integrity to yourself and to your teammates. Um, don't be a troublemaker. Don't be somebody that it's all about them. You know, be humble in your as be ambitious in your aspirations, but humble in your actions, right? Have great goals, but be an even better teammate. Right. And mm-hmm. then three is just keep your head down and work, man. Like I, a lot of people say this, and a lot of people, you know, you you've seen them on Instagram—the guys that just want to, you know, film all their workouts and, you know, just talk about what they're doing. But the real people, the real guys that I know that are having the best success, are the ones that put that away, and they just put their nose to the grindstone when nobody's watching, and just work, and just push that limit every day. And so that that's the main three things I would tell people: if you if you're if you're willing to do do those three things, and you know it's not going to be hard for you to find success.
0: Love it, mate. Absolutely love it. I'll ask you one final question because I feel like we've touched every base that we could <laughs> touch. Um, but the final question that I ask everyone is how would you like to be remembered?
1: Man, that's, that's a question I ask myself every day. Um, I want to be remembered as a great man, as a loving man, um, You know, God willing, a, a husband and a father and somebody that inspired people to go out and live their dreams and and do hard things and, and, and not have to worry about, you know, what if I don't do this? Right. Um, I want to live an interesting life. I want to be an inspiration. I want to be a role model and I want to give back to people. And if giving back is through, you know, my failures and lessons that I've learned along the way, then man, that's, that's, that's enough for me, dude. Like it's, It's an honor, and a lot of it's just having these conversations with people like yourself and hopefully somebody listening to this that's kind of on the fence about doing bobsleigh or a winter sport or anything crazy, buying a plane ticket to moving overseas. Man, if that's you and you're listening to this, just do it, man. Like, It's not – you will be so rewarded at the end than just not doing it. So,
0: Love it, mate. Just let everyone know how they can support you and where they can find you online and stuff.
1: Yeah man, you can find me on Instagram uh emarky80 uh on Twitter emarky80 which I'm not really big on Twitter. Uh Instagram's my big platform. Um I'm hopefully going to have a website out soon kind of where you can support uh follow my journeys and I kind of start to launch my business as like a speaker and and traveler and I want to get more engaged and especially with those listening and and those that want to get in touch. Um I'm, my DMs are always open. My email is the same as my Instagram handle, so it's emarky80 at gmail.com. If you want to reach out and you got questions about winter sports, bobsled, football, training, uh, living overseas, just, and I'm, I'm an open book. So,
0: appreciate it, mate. Really appreciate you coming on.
1: Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it, brother.
0: Thank you to everyone who made it all the way through the episode. I really enjoyed this one with Elliot. He's such a great guy. Such a great high performance mindset and he's going to go so far in the sport, I can already see it. So all the best to Elliot and his career as a bobsled athlete and yeah, make sure you check him out in the link in the description and also check out everything to do with the podcast, TikTok, Instagram, what have you, all in the link in the description. Also watch out on the social media for a possible giveaway that will be coming in the coming weeks. I have something planned and yeah. Just be aware that something's coming and it's going to be something great. So make sure you're watching out for that. I will see you next Monday for another episode of the Quantum Podcast.